You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I sit down with Gautam Bade. As many of the listeners know, Gautam is the author of one of my very favorite books, The Joys of Compounding. The Joys of Compounding is a bestseller in seven countries and in my opinion is a must read for all value investors. So I highly encourage all of our listeners to pick up the book. Gautam Bade is the managing partner of Stellar Wealth Partners India Fund, a Delaware-based investment partnership, which is available to accredited investors in the U.S. Gautam is also the equity advisor of Complete Circle Stellar Wealth PMS, a portfolio management service which is available to Indian citizens and NRIs globally. Both funds are modeled after the Buffett Partnership fee structure and invests in listed Indian equities with a long-term, fundamental, and value-oriented approach. During this conversation, Gautam and I cover a lot. We chat about where Gautam's passion for value investing and lifelong learning originated from, the story of Gautam applying to over 1,300 jobs in the investment industry before landing one as a portfolio manager, Gautam's definition of a high-quality business and why he allocates the majority of his fund's portfolio to such businesses, the characteristics of a business that indicate it has high staying power, why Gautam looks for opportunities in all areas of the stock market, including cyclicals, spinoffs, and special situations, why it's so important to think probabilistically instead of deterministically, why Gautam believes that, quote, India's time has arrived, and much more. At the end of the episode, Gautam also gives our listeners his top book recommendations, which I personally put a lot of weight on given his breadth of knowledge and the number of books he has read over the years. Also, before we dive into the episode, our TIP Mastermind community recently had a community call with Gautam where members of the group had the opportunity to ask him questions during a live Q&A session. If you're interested in being a part of this exclusive TIP Mastermind community and networking with like-minded investors, then you can learn more by visiting theinvestorspodcast.com slash mastermind or simply emailing me at clay at theinvestorspodcast.com. Buckle up because Gautam really delivered during this episode, so I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host today, Clay Fink, and I really couldn't be more excited because I'm joined by Gautam Bade. Gautam, it's great to have you today. Thank you for having me on the show, Clay. Well, this episode really feels like a long time in the making. I'm such a huge fan of your book, and I know countless other people in the audience are huge fans as well. So first of all, I just want to personally thank you for making such a huge impact on me and writing the book and then just sharing it with the world. Thank you, Clay. The love of readers like you just keeps me going. So to kick off this discussion, I thought the best place to start would be to talk about your background. You started in Kolkata, India, and now you're in Atlanta here in the US. Talk to us about your journey and where this passion for investing came from. Sure. So I was born and brought up in a family of four in Kolkata in the state of West Bengal in India. I'm the youngest of the four siblings in my family. And uh, my family belongs to the Marwari caste. So anyone familiar with the Indian community culture knows that within the Marwari community in India, we have business in our genes from the very beginning since childhood because we generally tend to embrace entrepreneurship and business. So my father was also operating a small business since my childhood. And ever since my childhood and teenage years, I was very fascinated by the concept of entrepreneurship and business. 
especially by the fact that once a solid foundation is established for a business the owners do not work for money rather money works for them i did my graduation in commerce uh, from calcutta university so pursuing higher studies in the field of finance seemed like a natural extension so i went on to do my ms in finance from icfa university hyderabad india i went on to do my mba in finance from nirmal university in ahmedabad india and later on i also went on to obtain my cfa charter from the cfa institute us after i completed my mba program i got a campus placement with citibank in their mumbai india office where i worked for 3 years as an investment banking analyst and after that i joined deutsche bank as a senior analyst and worked at their mumbai london and hong kong offices for 4 years now all throughout the initial 7 years of my investment banking career i was making a decent sum of salary income but i was not really happy with the work that i was doing because the field of investment banking is basically characterized a lot by you know perverse incentives and incentive cost bias and i like to play win win games rather than win lose games so during this particular time is when uh, my interest in the stock markets and investing in general also went up significantly there is a back story to this so just like most investors i was initially attracted to the stock market during the final euphoric phases of a bull market in my case it was the 2003 to 2007 bull market in india i still remember i had purchased a mutual fund called reliance power sector mutual fund in late 2007 and i had purchased a stock named ispat steel in january 2008 because both of these belong to the hot and fancy sectors of power and steel at that particular time and both these investments had, had sharply appreciated in a short span of time when i first noticed them so i just engaged in blind extrapolation of the recent price trends in them without paying any heed or attention to their valuations or business models and i eventually paid the price because recency and vividness biases are very powerful but highly costly behavioral mistakes both those investments crashed 70 to 80% within the first 18 months of my purchase and i had successfully gained my admission into the stock market by paying my tuition fees despite this bad initial ex- setback and experience my interest and curiosity about the stock markets remained very high throughout the first 7 years of my professional investment banking career and one fine day i came to the realization that we just have this one short life to live our dreams and i did not want to waste any further time working in a field that i was not truly passionate about i was so keen for a career shift that in 2015 i relocated to the us without any job in hand so one of my close relatives he sponsored my green card to come in the us and i was very firm and adamant that i'm not going to go back to my previous field of work of investment banking i want to work as a generalist on the buy side in the stock market and i was under the impression that since i am a cfa charter holder and this particular degree is highly valued in the investment industry i thought i'll easily land a stock market job but as you know clay life is not a bed of roses for those who are trying to carve their own destiny i got rejected in my first three stock market job interviews within the first 6 months of coming to the us at the same time i ran out of whatever little money i had brought with me from india and to take care of my living expenses i did not want to sell a single stock from my portfolio of indian shares because i did not want to interrupt the process of compounding so to take care of my living expenses in the us i took up a minimum wage job as a front desk hotel clerk at a hotel in san francisco where i worked for 15 months in the graveyard shift now for those of you who are uninitiated with this term the graveyard shift refers to the shift which runs from 11 pm at night to 7 am in the morning and even though it was a big challenge for me physically emotionally culturally and intellectually today in hindsight i highly value those days of my life clay because for the first time since the beginning of my busy investment banking career i finally got a lot of free time for myself to read and learn 
the pace of work during late night to early morning in the hotel was pretty slow and i made full use of the free time i had to read every single blog article published since in since inception on blogs like stuffelneveshak.com funduprofessor.com saber capital management that he has a blog called uh, basic investing macrocap club which is run by ian castle and a blog by janna so the passionate pursuit of lifelong learning at finally began now here i would also like to share with you just to take a moment out to discuss the importance of passion and the importance of persistence i recall during those 15 months at the hotel every single night i used to apply to a minimum of three stock market jobs online if you just do the simple math over those 15 months i had applied to more than 1300 stock market jobs in the us and as you know clay every time we take out the time to fill up the application attach a resume and I click the submit button there is so much hope attached behind every single job submission to face rejections more than 1300 times and still keep on going is only only possible if you are fiercely passionate about what you want to do in life so never give up because compounding will bestow its magic and benefits upon you only after testing your patience and conviction to the fullest now luck chance serendipity and randomness have always played a big role in various aspects of my life till date One fine night during November 2016, during the course of my routine online job search, I just clicked on the quick apply button on a job application on LinkedIn, and wonder of wonders, I, I unexpectedly received a job interview call, and that too for a senior role in an investment firm, even though I had zero formal stock market work experience. And this was the phase in my life during which I was about to experience the power of compounding knowledge in action. You see, all those previous 15 months at the hotel, all those hundreds of hours spent. reading all those blog articles and white papers had now built a strong intellectual foundation for me in investing this is what i was lacking during my first three stock market job interviews when i had got rejected and this time i was able to excel in all the three rounds of my uh, job interview and uh, i landed the role of portfolio manager at summit global investments handling global equity strategy and it was like a dream come true for me never in my wildest dreams had i thought that i would straight away land the job of a portfolio manager i thought i'll start as a junior analyst then get promoted to analyst then get further promoted to senior analyst from there to assistant portfolio manager and then finally become a portfolio manager after 13 14 years but this is how compounding works the power of compounding is backloaded and if you can just sustain yourself slightly more than the competition and stay the course have the conviction you can make it begin life so i worked as a portfolio manager there for four and a half years and while tracking global equity markets as a portfolio manager there india as a stock market very clearly stood out to me in terms of the number of high growth opportunities it offered so in july 2021 i quit my job at summit global to start off my own india focused fund based out of the us to bring the india investment opportunity to investors here the entire process of setting up the fund getting all the regulatory approvals took around a year and uh, in the, since in july 2020 22 we launched uh, the fund to the public and we the portfolio went live on 3rd of october 2022 and alongside that uh, this particular india fund since it was open only to us citizens a lot of non resident indians or nris who live in foreign countries and a lot of indian citizens in india basically wrote to me saying that we would also like to part participate in your investment philosophy but your fund is open only to the us citizens so to cater to the uh, global indian citizen community as well i recently launched stella wealth pms in collaboration with complete circle wealth solutions in india so both the india fund in the us and stellavel pms in india have the same portfolio one caters to us citizens and the other one caters to all the indian citizens living across the world amazing i'm sure uh we have a lot of listeners in india as well as in the us i want to transition to your book the joys of compounding and the very first quote in your book is from charlie munger it says the best thing a human being can do 
is to help another human being know more. So super grateful you shared all of this knowledge in the book. And I'm curious what led you to writing this? Because this thing is, it's not a short book and it's not a, it's very dense. It's 400 pages and it feels like every page just is just full of so much wisdom and knowledge. So I'm curious what led you to writing this and what did the process look like? So as with most big events in life, this also has a very interesting backstory to it, which I'll share with you here. So I joined Twitter in late 2016, in November 2016, to be precise. And I started posting my thoughts on various subjects like philosophy, psychology, history, investing, business, etc. And within three months of me joining Twitter, two people from India flew all the way from India to Salt Lake City, Utah, to meet me and actually thank me for the content I was posting on Twitter. They were the ones who suggested to me the idea of writing a book. They said, no, you write so well, why don't you publish your thoughts into a book? Now, Steve Jobs has very rightly said that you cannot connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect the dots looking backward. For many years, I had a habit of curating great content into a Word document and maintaining an investment journal and just collecting my thoughts. I thought I already have all the content ready with me. Why don't I simply segregate these into different chapters and just publish this into a book? Now, at that time, I basically self-published the first edition of The Joys of Compounding. I spent the you know, entire initial uh, cost for uh, marketing, production, logistics, distribution, etc. from my own pocket. And I did not charge any royalty or fee uh, for the first edition of The Joys of Compounding. That time, the only idea was give back to the investing community from whom I've gotten to learn so much over the years. I thought if I can even attract, if the book just even sells a few hundred copies and if I'm able to at least help a few people and also attract a few like-minded investors into my circle, that will be a decent enough outcome. That There was no other objective at that particular time. But Clay, when you help others unconditionally, the universe works in such a way so as to come back and reward you back multiple times over. The self-published edition of The Joys of Compounding took off and it sold a lot of copies, gained a lot of popularity in US and Canada. And in May 2019, I was at Creative University in Omaha, uh, signing copies of the book alongside Guy Spire. And lo and behold, Miles Thompson from Columbia University Press, he's a very big name in the publishing industry here. He came to, he flew over from New York to meet me and offer me a publishing opportunity with Columbia Business School Publishing. And it was like a dream come true for me because for all us value investors, we always have a quiet dream of working with Columbia someday because that is where value investing discipline originated with Benjamin Graham. So this was a great example of compounding goodwill in action. I initially started off with a simple thought of helping others. And eventually, I got this great opportunity to further expand on that by collaborating with Columbia. And the rest is history. Uh, today, the Joys of Compounding is an international bestseller in seven countries. Amazing, amazing story. In your book, you describe that you want to own a high-quality business with high-quality earnings growth. And I know you've thought about this a lot, you know, what constitutes a high quality business. So I'm super curious what your definition is of a high quality business. Clearly, a high quality business has got three fundamental attributes. Number one, the business has to be earning a return on capital employed, which is far above the cost of capital. The difference between return on capital employed and cost of capital gives you the free cash flow yield. Number two, the business has to have a strong competitive advantage or what Buffett calls a moat in order to protect and sustain that high return on capital for a long period of time. And number three, and most important, the business has to have sufficient reinvestment opportunities within itself at high returns on capital. This is how that business becomes a compounding machine. Many stocks with high returns on capital pay out large dividends. They have very high dividend payout ratios, but those kind of businesses are good for preserving wealth. But if you want to grow your wealth and grow your purchasing power over time, you have to find these compounding machines. And these are very rare. Because many of these high uh, ROC businesses, 
eventually end up doing diversification or venturing into low ROC business initiatives because they want to start building an empire. They start focusing on size instead of the economics of the business. So you have to be very careful and have a razor sharp focus on capital allocation, which the business is following. And one of my favorite parts of your book is where you talk about how quality is much more resilient during times of market turbulation. And it's what matters most in retaining long-term wealth. Another interesting concept is that there's always a market for quality because people who appreciate quality always seem to have cash at their disposal. Can you talk about this idea of putting our focus on quality businesses for long-term wealth creation? Sure. So Peter Bernstein had very rightly said, survival is the only road to riches. And what did he mean by that? As an investor, how can you be best prepared to handle the periodic severe market corrections and the bear market crashes, which you will definitely encounter during your lifetime? You ensure that you have tennis balls, that is high quality businesses, rather than eggs, that is bad quality junk stocks, which splatter after they fall onto the floor. So many of us make large paper fortunes during a bull market, but eventually lose all of it when the bear market inevitably arrives. During a market crash, both quality and junk stocks fall. Quality eventually recovers and goes on to make new highs, whereas junk stocks lie low for many years and never recover. And how much you're able to recover after a bear market is far more important than how much paper profit you make during a bull market. And quality of the business and quality of the management matter the most in retaining long-term wealth. This is why at Stellar Partners India Fund, I just don't want to you know, make all my investors rich. I also want them to stay rich. And for that, you need to have a razor sharp focus on quality at all times. And you mentioned in your book that you limit second line stocks to less than 20% of your portfolio because plenty of rising stars have vanished without a trace. That's a quote I pulled from your book. Can you talk about you know, what that sort of second line looks like? What sort of segments or what types of companies are you looking for there? So second line stocks refers to macro cap stocks, deep cyclical stocks, commodity stocks. You know, basically the returns from tried and trusted frontline stocks may not be spectacular, but they tend to be more consistent over time. And in my book, I've talked about this, that once you've achieved financial independence, it is imperative. It is very important to realign your portfolio to have majority allocation in high quality businesses. Once you achieve a state of financial prosperity in life, once you become financially wealthy, take all steps to ensure that you are not thrown back to the starting point. And for that, you need to have a razor sharp focus on high quality businesses in your portfolio. So in my uh, India fund, for example, since I accept only accredited investors who are already financially wealthy. So those people you know, already have done well in life financially. Now they don't want to lose all their hard-earned savings. So it's a job which requires you know, to, a fund manager to understand this and to make sure that the client's uh, wealth is preserved at all times. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. 
That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. A lot of people, when they hear value investing, they probably just think about companies that screen cheaply or think about Buffett's you know, cigar butt type approach. What is it about high quality businesses that you pay up for that allows you to, you know, earn higher returns relative to the overall market and maybe makes it more of a reliable approach than the cigar butt investing approach? Let's add a bit of text to the end of your sentence. Over a long period of time, this is the key point which I wanted to highlight. The answer to your question lies in one single word, longevity, longevity, longevity. And that comes from the durability of the moat or the competitive advantage which the company has. So this is what allows quality businesses, which have got durable modes, to enjoy sustained returns in excess of their cost of capital for a long period of time and create a lot of wealth for investors. Because the moment you invest in a lower quality business, which is earning below its cost of capital, even though that business may be growing fast, but that ends up destroying shareholder value because the intrinsic value is reducing with each passing day. Any business which is earning less than its cost of capital is actually destroying shareholder value over time. So it's just a matter of time before the such kind of businesses blow up because those kind of businesses will always have to tap capital markets for their financing, for their funding. They'll have to resort to external capital. And like Buffett says, they have to rely on the kindness of strangers. You want to ideally avoid such businesses to the maximum extent possible and focus on businesses which can grow from retained earnings and internal accruals. Those are the kind of businesses I like to focus on for my India fund and for the PMS. And another concept you talk about in your book is quality businesses having high staying power. You know, that means they can stand the test of time. They can weather through black swan events like a pandemic that comes out of nowhere. What sort of characteristics show that a business has high staying power and it's able to weather through 
any sort of storms that come its way. So some of the notable characteristics include having stable product characteristics, deep customer loyalty, a strong competitive advantage, a growth mindset with a razor sharp focus on long-term profitability and sustainability, a fragmented customer and supplier base, a corporate culture that encourages intelligent and measured risk taking, a very strong parentage which allows the company to access capital during periods of severe market stress, a highly liquid balance sheet, and finally, both the willingness and the capacity to suffer by investing for the long term at the expense of short term earnings. Such companies which have got staying power tend to have higher longevity and higher duration of cash flows, and thus they have higher intrinsic value over time. When we were chatting in Omaha during the Berkshire weekend, you mentioned that the super normal profits are found in companies that are leaders in their industry and they have little to no competition. And immediately when I hear that, I think of all the FANG stocks in the US, you know, Google, they have had essentially no competition in the search business. They've been able to earn super normal profits. And then you can kind of go down the line with the FANG stocks on each of those. Can you maybe expand on this idea of super normal profits with little competition and how you're able to find such a company in India? I know you're focused in that country, which we'll be getting to here as well. Right, clear. This is a very important question. And what matters for successful investing is not how fast a particular industry is going to grow. What matters is, can you identify pockets within the value chain of that particular industry which have supply-side dominance? You want to look for companies which have got dominant market share and have little or no competition. And why is that? It's because competition acts as friction for value creation. And the best form of competitive advantage is to have no competitor in the customer's minds. The brand recall should be so strong that it's very difficult to recall the next closest competitor. And Buffett has taught us that the true test of a moat is pricing power. And where does pricing power come from? It happens when the brand becomes synonymous with the product category itself. So look at Jockey for Innerwear. In India, look at Royal Enfield for leisure biking or look at Symphony for air coolers, or look at Xerox for photocopying in its heydays. The brand has to become synonymous with the product category, then you get pricing power. And these kind of companies tend to enjoy a strong bargaining power with their suppliers and customers, and they tend to operate with negative working capital or other people's money. And how, how can you identify such companies as a research analyst or a fund manager? Look for an item titled Advances from Customers. When you're reading through the annual report, look for this particular item. If any company is receiving advances upfront, from the customer before delivering the product or the service, it indicates that that business is operating on negative working capital and there is something very special taking place in that particular business. That's how you identify such kind of companies. Now, when you find the right company that can, you know, has all these attributes you've been talking about, a high quality business, and you end up being right about the company, eventually the market gets really excited about the business and the multiple becomes extended. And a prime example of this in the US is the fascination in the AI boom, you know, stocks like Nvidia and chip manufacturers and other companies related to this are just really taking off. I'm curious what your framework is for selling or holding these companies when their valuation becomes extended after you first bought it. So two pronged answer to this question. The first one, I'll just answer the first, uh, I'll take the first part. I conduct a reverse discounted cash flow operation on a tool called Tejuri Finance for when I'm screening or looking at companies in India. This uh, particular tool tells me what are the growth expectations embedded in the current stock price. At the current level of valuations in the current stock price, what is the market's expectation for future growth? And the base rates of making money 
from stocks which are trading at more than 100 times price to earning multiple on a one year forward basis is historically very very low and as an investor what i'm trying to do all the time i'm trying to have the odds on my side as much as possible that's all that investing is really all about a probabilistic bet on what lies in the future right so i like to focus a lot on base rates and so this reverse discounted cash flow operation tells me the growth expectations i also have the current valuations with me if they don't make sense to me if there is no margin of safety then i simply make a exit the second part to this answer is looking at what stage of the company cycle is the business in so every business goes through four stages basically introduction or the early adoption stage then growth stage then maturity and then decline if you are able to enter into a high growth business at the introduction stage or between the introduction stage and the growth stage and you have a long runway for growth ahead for next 8 10 years even if you pay a very high p multiple or a price to earning multiple you still end up making a lot of money in such stocks because in such businesses the high growth tends to bail you out even if the valuation contracts a bit along the way but if you're entering into such highly valued stocks just when they're about to enter into a decline phase that is when the sharpest uh, pace of pd rating happens and you end up with permanent loss of capital so conduct a reverse discounted cash flow operation and also check which stage of the company life cycle is the business currently operating in what also really amazed me in reading your book was just your massive breadth of knowledge across various types of investing strategies you know we talk about this quality approach and i feel like i sort of gravitate towards that it really fascinated me when you talked about these other approaches you talked about cyclicals and commodities and you tell some stories related to some really big wins you had in these different spaces so talk about the role that these other sort of investing approaches played for you because early on in your journey you were really focused on you know growing your wealth and growing your pie and achieving financial independence whereas with your fund you're maybe taking a bit different of a strategy so i'd love for you to expand on some of these other approaches outside of what we'll call quality investing so clay my personal investment opportunity set has significantly expanded over the years with time and experience in the markets initially i started off like all investors do by reading benjamin grams the intelligent investor so i started off by investing in low price to earning low price to book stocks of inferior quality businesses then i read about buffett munger and phil fisher and i shifted to investing in quality businesses at reasonable prices but today it covers multiple areas of the investment universe including merger arbitrage promoter management change deep value cyclicals and various other investment approaches and re- reason behind having a diversified investment approaches that big opportunities in the market can spring up on a short notice and in order to capitalize on them in a very big way you have to have the intellectual and theoretical framework in place well beforehand and how do you develop that intellectual and theoretical framework to capitalize on such big opportunities i'll share a few personal examples here so there is a great book on special situations uh, which is titled you can be a stock market genius by joel greenblatt in which he talks about how you can invest and make big profits and spin offs promoter management change merger arbitrage etc and uh, implementing all the learnings from that book has helped me greatly in my investing journey so far same thing with a book called capital returns which is edited by edward chancellor in that book you get to learn how to deploy the capital cycle theory and invest in deeply cyclical businesses for high capital gains so let me talk about a past case study from my personal brokerage account and uh, this is a stock named rajratan global buyer in india during 2018 and 2019 the indian auto industry was in a down very severe down cycle and the entire auto sector was out of favor but there was this auto ancillary company named rajratan global buyer 
which was undertaking a very big capacity expansion since the entire sector was out of favor so investors attention on this particular stock was low but as soon as the capacity expansion got over and the auto industry started experiencing a recovery from uh, middle of 2020 the stock of rajaratnam global went on to become my first ever 20 bagger in india it gave more than 2000% returns in just the next two years between june 2020 and june 2022 i could not exit it at the absolute peak but i was still able to nail down a very substantial profit on that particular name so that's one example of how you were able to employ the learnings from capital returns book into a real life uh, practical situation and create good wealth for yourself now coming back to joel greenblatt's book in which i learned about merger arbitrage and spin offs so i'll give you an, an example of a merger arbitrage situation from my india fund so the india fund went live on 3rd october 2022 and around the end of last year around december there was a stock called equitas holding in india which was about to undergo a merger with equitas small finance bank at the 2.26 to 1 merger ratio there was a 18% merger arbitrage discount on the table for the taking if you simply had the patience to wait for another 6 months till the merger got completed and on top of that equitas small finance bank was trading at a very cheap valuation so you have the 18% merger arbitrage discount on the table you are having cheap valuations you are having a strong sectoral tailwind in the indian banking industry all the elements are in place to bet big i made this the biggest position in my fund that time with a 5.5% weight and over the next 6 months the stock of equitas holding went on to give more than 100% returns so when you have a 5.5% weight to a single stock in the fund and that stock doubles you basically add 5.5 percentage points to your overall funds return this was a case study from merger arbitrage and finally now i'll share a final case study on spin offs or in india we call them demergers so the really big money in spin offs takes place when there is an element of forced selling and forced selling takes place in two situations one what is what i call a market cap demerger and the second one is what i call a sectoral demerger so there was a situation in march 2023 when you had a small cap pharmaceutical stock spun off from a midcap parent called arthi industries so arthi pharma labs got spun out of uh, arthi industries arthi industries is a midcap chemicals company whereas arthi pharma labs is a small cap pharma company so the moment arthi pharma labs got spun out of its parent all the chemical sector dedicated funds they were not allowed to hold on to a pharma uh, stock in their portfolio so they engaged in forced selling at the same time all the midcap funds which were not allowed to hold a small cap stock in their portfolio they also started dumping this stock on the open market after listing so there was a time when the stock of arthi pharma labs fell to a depressed valuation of less than 12 times earnings and this stock has got earnings uh, potential of more than 25% for the next 3 to 5 years so you are getting a large margin of safety because of forced selling from all these institutional players so i made this uh, stock the biggest uh, position in my india fund in march 2023 and the stock in april and may and june so far has risen by in the last three months itself has risen by more than 60% so moment you get a large margin of safety in these special situations you have to bet big and make them count related to that merger why is it that do you believe there was such a wide discount the 18% discount you know before the merger occurred because uh, they just like, like in us we have an example right look at microsoft and activision the deal did not go through the deal got cancelled right so there's always some uncertainty when uh, these kind of mergers are involved but uh, you know in again this is where it pays to be a student of financial market history in india basically if you go in the past and see which are the mergers which have been cancelled or called off by the regulators or the government it's in sectors or industries which are which hold very high strategic national interest for example telecom defense those are the industries in which the moment the government gets involved 
if and if it's a matter of high national importance that is where there's a big risk of you know the merger maybe getting called off by the regulator but in other industries where you know most uh, mergers have basically gone through without any problem like in this case the banking industry the odds were on my side and even in the, and see you want to basically invest big when you get a asymmetric risk reward ratio right so in this case even if the merger did not go through even if i did not enjoy that 18% low risk return even then i would have benefited from the cheap valuations and the sectoral tailwinds and the high growth prospects in equitas for the next uh, few years so there was basically less next to no downside hardly any downside but a lot of upside which actually happened and when these uh, asymmetric bets pay off in a very big way on a big allocation that is the time when you feel really satisfied and happy as a fund manager I think you talked about how, you know, something might be a really good risk reward opportunity, but there might be a lot of uncertainty related to it. You didn't you weren't 100% certain whether the deal was going to go through or not, but so there was maybe a high level of uncertainty, but there's a low level of risk and some people maybe confuse the difference between those two. Correct. So basically, here I would like to share a fundamental truth of investing. No company or no business is 100% great and no company or business is 100% bad in never think in terms of black or white in the investing field always think in t- shades of gray don't think deterministically think probabilistically that is what all the great investors in history have taught us that they always think in terms of probabilities and uh, you know when you're on a race track you're not trying to bet on the best horse you're trying to find a mispriced gamble a mispriced bet that is what value investing is all actually all about you want to get more value for the price being paid with the lowest amount of risk and at the end of the day unknown unknowns keep happening in any industry or business so how do you tackle that you prudently diversify across risk factors and sectors that is the approach you have to take you have to just if you can just survive in this game for the long term the force of capitalism is so so strong play that you can't help but become rich over time because of the power of compounding but the stock market is designed in such a way so as to basically exploit our biggest weaknesses of greed and fear and that's why most of us cannot really sustain in this business for a long enough time you have to have the calm and mature temperament and have a sense of equanimity towards market fluctuations and focus on the business that you have to think like a businessman not as a stock analyst you mentioned history and i wanted to chat about one of my favorite chapters in your book read more history and fewer forecasts and it was really an eye opener for me because so many people nowadays forecast where the economy is going to go, what the Fed's going to do. What really grabbed my attention was your part where you essentially debunk the notion of don't fight the Fed, which is essentially Wall Street's of saying the Fed essentially controls and drives where the markets are going to be heading. So can you explain why forecasting the economy in the stock market is largely a waste of time for investors? it is because the stock market will always be unpredictable because it is a complex adaptive system with trillions of moving parts in it and the way buffett and munger tackle a decision you know when they are tackling a challenge or a problem and making a decision they ask themselves a simple question is it knowable and and is it important so where the stock market is headed which way is the economy headed what is the trajectory of future interest rates all of these are important but unknowable i mean if the federal reserve with its army of economists and analysts could not forecast in 2020 2021 what was about to happen to inflation and interest rates who are we to you know for make such forecasts uh, on such big you know complex macro issues i think the best we can do as investors is to focus on individual businesses and their industry developments that's the best we can do nothing more so always remain humble 
otherwise the market will humble you in the future you have to just you know, be very very humble and grounded in this profession clay because the moment you know success gets to our heads and we start thinking of you know ourselves as the masters of the universe and the you know best investors you know ever after a recent big win that is when basically we let down our guard and we forget the basics of investing the basic tenets of investing which benjamin graham has taught us in the intelligent investor so those three fundamental ten- tenets should never be forgotten and we should always be humble grounded have a long term approach and not to get emotionally attached to stock price fluctuations once if you have all these elements in place you're ready to do very well both as an investor and as a fund manager another thing that really sticks out to me from this chapter is to understand the incentive structure of the people you know performing market forecasts maybe it's you know some major media news outlet trying to drive clicks you mentioned base rates earlier in base rates it's such a important concept because you talk about how you know most macro forecasters the vast majority of them aren't able to make decisions that benefit them to you know doing well in terms of investing and you mentioned humility to have the humility to understand that if you're going to be a macro forecaster you're going to try and time the market then your base rates based on just studies and looking at other investors your base rates are really low correct and uh, you mentioned the point about humility so let me quote warren buffett here in his latest annual letter to investors of berkshire buffett is so humble that even at this age after achieving such huge success he says in this latest letter that his fortunes and his success is the product of 12 good decisions over his investing lifetime and he has made hundreds of investing decisions over the last 60 70 years right if warren buffett was telling us that just a handful of good decisions drove almost all of his success as an investor and as a businessman that's a reminder to me to always stay grounded in this profession and i think that's a great attribute to have so clay in my book i've written, the joys of compounding i've written this that many people achieve success but to sustain the same and build on it over an entire lifetime requires a sense of gratitude a constant learning mindset and a sense of humility it's very very important let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news and each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. 
and iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joints range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. I love that you mentioned that Buffett said the majority of his success is driven by just 12 investments. And it reminds me of Monish's conversation with Steg here on our show where, you know, he talks about the vast majority of investing success comes down to just a select handful of decisions. And that's why I really wanted to ask you about your sell criteria. What causes you to sell an investment? Because, you know, when you find a very high quality business, it can be really painful to let go of it in case you see it continue to compound for many years ahead after you sell it. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Sure. So there are three key sell criteria, which I follow when I'm investing. So one is if the management shows a major lack of integrity, that's very, very important because as with any long-term relationship, you know, the moment, you know, you lose faith in the integrity of the other person, basically that relationship is doomed, right? So just like the same applies to investing as well. If the management shows serious corporate governance issues or a lack of integrity, you basically sell and move on. The second one is if the business starts engaging in gross capital misallocation, so here, I would like to emphasize that look at the magnitude of the capital misallocation. So in the late 1980s, Coca-Cola, Coke used to, you know, they, they opened up a film production business, they opened a shrimp business, and they entered into various other value destructive businesses. But because those business initiatives were so small in the overall context uh, of the high ROC setup business, so Coke did not really 
destroy much shareholder value but if the size of the capital misallocation is very large compared to the existing scale of operations of the business that time you have to take a dispassionate view and sell the stock and the third reason for selling a stock is if you find a far superior opportunity this is important within quotes far superior opportunity to invest in because when you invest in a stock which has performed very well for you delivered good returns and has become expensive you have developed a certain level of deep understanding and familiarity with that management and with that business you should let go of such a stock only if you find a very very superior opportunity otherwise it doesn't make sense to switch for an equally comparable return opportunity let's talk about india this is the one i'm really excited about this is what your fund focuses on stellar wealth partners so i'm curious i'll just open it up to you why should a us based investor want exposure to the indian market single word answer clay diversification 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 so from november 2021 to december 2022 the nasdaq in us was down more than 30% but the indian index the nifty was up 4% a 34% outperformance during a period of severe market turbulence in the american stock market and when i talk to clients uh, before onboarding them into my india fund i always tell them very frankly that do not expect very high superior returns compared to what you would get when you're investing in the us stock markets but treat this fund more like a diversification tool in your overall asset allocation so i always tell people to have a balanced uh, allocation between real estate gold fixed income and equities within equities you have domestic equities and international equities so within the international equities portion definitely have exposure to india because india is the fastest growing major economy in the world offering a plethora of high growth opportunities and it's a very 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 resilient stock market so you want to basically invest in my view us and india are the best stock markets in the world to invest in period there is no doubt in my mind about that so you basically get the best of both worlds you get diversification benefit you get resilience during periods of us market turbulence and you also get healthy returns over time munger has said that the first rule of fishing is to go where the fish are and you obviously believe there are plenty of fish to be found in india and i heard you say in a previous interview i quote india's time has arrived so Talk to us about what makes India such a great place to go fishing. So clearly no force on earth can stop an idea whose time has come and India's time has arrived. It took India almost 60 years to make its first trillion dollars of GDP, but it took India only 7 years to reach its second trillion dollars of GDP and the subsequent trillion dollars of GDP are expected to be reached in much faster succession. If we simply assume the market cap to GDP to approximate 1 over time over the next few decades one can just envisage the kind of wealth creation that lies in stores for investors in great indian businesses trillions of dollars we're talking trillions of dollars of market cap addition here and which companies will capture the bulk of this upcoming wealth creation boom in the indian stock market over the next few decades the nation's best managed businesses with proven ability to scale up their operations and to create shareholder value those are the kind of businesses you want to back with your personal capital and with your client's capital so that's the fundamental approach which i have taken for my india fund as well and here i would also like to add two more very important points clay the first point is from history so if you look at the stock markets of us japan and china when those economies gdp doubled from 3 trillion to 6 trillion their stock markets did not just double their stock markets tripled or even quadrupled and why did that happen it's because when any nation transitions from a low per capita income country to a middle income per capita country the basic spending on items like food does not go up much but the spending on branded discretionary consumption and financialization of savings these two categories simply explode so you want to position your portfolio for long term success by having 
higher allocation to these two particular themes of branded discretionary consumption and financialization of savings finally you know from history that the one of the biggest drivers of gdp growth in any country is banking system credit credit is the driver for growth in any country right between 2011 and 2020 the indian banking system was plagued by a plethora of bad asset quality issues there are a lot of non performing assets and therefore they were very constrained in the lending so lending slowed down and economic growth slowed down but because of a series of banking reforms in india over the last uh, many years the banking system balance sheet has been cleaned up and now they are very enthusiastic about lending again at the same time corporate india has greatly delevered its balance sheet and reduced debt over the last uh, decade and they are primed for a fresh round of capex and again history teaches us clearly that for any sustained long term bull market you need a revival of the capex cycle so here you have the twin engines of credit growth firing up the gdp and the capex cycle revival firing up the stock market so both these twin engines are firing at the same time in india right now so that's why it's very uh, it's a very exciting time to be an investor in the indian stock market today outside of india's general you know growth and gdp and where they're at in their growth cycle what sort of long term structural trends or industries are you seeing that really get you excited so uh, first let me elaborate what do long term structural trends actually mean because these are one of the two key pillars uh, of our investment philosophy at stellavel partners so our investment philosophy is made up of two key pillars variant perception and long term structural trends variant perception refers to situations where you have return on capital employed roc expansion coupled with earnings growth you get valuation re-rating and you end up with multiple multi baggers and there are various triggers for variant perception which we follow at stellavel partners now coming to long term structural trends long term structural trends are found in industries with a very favorable structure they are organized like a monopoly or a duopoly or an oligopoly at best they are characterized by consistency and predictability of cash flows and they have a long runway for growth ahead so you can forecast cash flows for many years ahead they are also characterized by value migration so for the last two decades in india we have had value migration from public sector to private sector from unorganized to organized from offline to online and there are multiple structural growth plays in the indian stock market today namely specialty chemicals with critical application led by china plus one because as the world tries to shift away from china and build a reliable second uh, supplier source india is uh, becoming a very preferred partner for many foreign companies second big theme which we are very bullish on at stellar wealth uh, india fund is contract manufacturing because of our low cost labor advantage India enjoys a distinct superiority in this particular theme of contract manufacturing. So within contract manufacturing, you have got CDMO or contract development and manufacturing organizations, which cater to pharmaceutical innovators across the world. You also have electronics manufacturing services is a very very high growth area in the Indian stock market. The electronics manufacturing services industry is forecasted to grow at thirty to forty percent over the next five years. So there also you get many high growth opportunities. And finally, within contract manufacturing, you also have crams or contract research and manufacturing services which cater to different industries like agrochemicals apart from these uh, structural growth themes you also have affordable housing fintech branded discretionary consumption financialization of savings digital transformation multiple mega trends are in place in the indian market today clay talking more about your fund I'm reminded that Guy Spear wrote the forward to your book and in his book he talks about his mistake of not setting up the partnership fee structure how he maybe should have originally and you opted for the buffett style fee structure where you participate in the upside with your investors and then you don't get paid if there's downside so talk about the fee structure and why you ended up taking this approach 
So Clay, in my book, uh, I've written a chapter titled Living Life uh, According to the Inner Scorecard in which I've talked about how Warren Buffett, during his Buffett partnership days, used to follow a highly principled approach for his clients. And that's because Buffett had certain attributes in him, sincerity, integrity, authenticity, honesty. But as an author, it's not enough for me to just preach these virtues in my book. Trust is earned when actions meet words. And I decided to implement those very words into action and just replicate the Buffett partnership fee structure for my India fund. And you will rarely find such an equitable fee structure in the investment management industry today. Buffett used to charge zero management fees, a 6% cumulative compounding hurdle rate with a high watermark provision. A high watermark is simply the previous all-time closing high on an annual closing basis, which the fund NAV has reached. And finally, he used to charge 25% of incentive performance fee on returns over 6%. I've gone one step further and improved upon the Buffett partnership fee structure by lowering the performance incentive fee from 25% to 20% in order to maximize the net realized returns for my investors. And I remember again, when we connected in Omaha, you had mentioned that the incentive structure in the investment industry is broken and all messed up. I think your words were, and you hear all the time that investors should avoid most active investment managers. Can you talk about this idea of you know the incentives being fundamentally broken and the things that maybe need to be fixed in the industry? Okay. Unfortunately, the investment industry has become more of a marketing industry with the sole objective of garnering AUM and earning hefty management fees. And uh, since there is no skin in the game in most cases by the fund manager, there is zero downside risk. So basically, you're just getting paid through management fees irrespective of performance. Now, I completely understand that if you're an emerging young fund manager just starting out and if you need some money to take care of your you and your family's living expenses, you can charge a nominal management fee of up to half a percent of AUM, but you should avoid charging hefty management fees because then, you know, these over time, these management fees eat greatly into investors' returns and their final result is a subsanded one. So as a result, only the hedge fund manager becomes rich, but not the clients who are supposed to become rich. And there's a great book uh, titled Where Are the Customers Yachts? I highly recommend all our audience to read that book. It speaks about the perverse incentives a widespread in the investment management industry. And all of us should educate ourselves on, you know, what are the best practices to follow and what are the mild practices to avoid? Since you've recently started a fund and you've been managing your own personal portfolio, I'm curious, what are some of the big differences in managing a fund versus managing you know, your own personal portfolio? There's a huge difference, Clay. There's a world of difference between managing your personal brokerage account and managing public money via a fund. The investment process, which you select when you're managing a fund, needs to be replicable, repeatable, and scalable because you want to basically build a scalable investment process, a scalable investment architecture, because that is the way you build a successful investment firm while taking care of your client's interests at the same time. So as a fund manager, there are three fundamental differences compared to managing your personal brokerage account money. As a fund manager, you put a heavy emphasis on quality. You put a heavy emphasis on prudent diversification, right? And you also make sure that the service providers which you select for your fund are of very high quality because the last thing you want is a disruption in your daily operations. You don't want to skimp on you know, paying your service providers well and choosing those with relevant experience and which are providing you maximum value for money. So focus on quality, focus on prudent diversification, and also focus on consistent client communications and having a good team of service providers uh, to manage your fund in a very sustained and disruption-free way. I love to talk about lifelong learning. It's what the focus of the start of your book is all about. And, you know, it's just wonderful and sharing these timeless, you know, lessons we could use in investing, but also use in our daily lives. And one of the key principles you believe in 
is fully embracing and fully committing to lifelong learning. And you've stated previously that in order to outperform the rest, you need to outlearn the rest. So can you talk about why value investing requires a relentless pursuit of knowledge in order to be successful? Sure. So let me answer this question through the use of multiple sectoral bull markets in India over the last 27 years. And this answer will actually demonstrate just why it is so, so imperative and important to be a voracious reader and a lifelong learner in this profession. Between 96 to 2000 in India, we had a sectoral bull market in technology, media, telecommunications. So as an investor, if you want to maximize your gains during that, those, that sectoral bull market, you would have had to educate yourself on those three industries. Between 2003 and 2008, we had a sectoral bull market in organized retail, real estate, infrastructure, and commodities. So again, here again, if you wanted to capitalize on those sectoral bull markets, you would have had to educate yourself on those four industries. Between 2009 and 2014, we had a sectoral bull market in pharmaceuticals, information technology services, and branded discretionary consumption. So again, you would have had to reinvent yourself and learn about two out of these three industries. And between 2015 and 2018, you had a sectoral bull market in autos, in non-banking financial companies, and microfinance companies. So again, you would have had to learn afresh about three new industries. And since April 2020, we have had a new sectoral bull market, which has emerged in electric vehicles, digital transformation plays, building materials, ethanol blending. Again, you have had to unlearn and, and relearn and reinvent yourself and again start learning on new, many new industries. So in order to outperform the rest, you have to outlearn the rest because while investing profession is a highly competitive intellectual sport and you have to be a learning machine all the time. And you know, if you embrace this attitude of learning all the time, you can have establish a very good long-term track record both for yourself and your clients. But you have to have this passion for learning. Charlie Munger, very smartly, what he has done is he has reoriented his mind to get this dopamine kicks or ple pleasure chemicals released in his brain by learning new things. I think all of us should embrace that kind of attitude to develop this love for learning and reading. I was uh, listening to a great podcast yesterday by William Green and Stig, in which they were discussing their passion and love for reading books and for constant learning. And that podcast, again, brought to the forefront the fundamental principle of success in this profession, a love for reading, learning and studying all the time. I think that's a way you become wiser and more rational as a person over time. And you rightly point out in your book that uh, Munger and Buffett have talked about how they wouldn't be where they're at today if they weren't, you know, voracious learning machines. Because Berkshire Hathaway had to evolve decade after decade as they learn new things. There's different competitive forces coming at them. And when Buffett first started his partnership, he probably would have, you know, been upset at the fact if he would have bought a company like Apple or a company like Coca-Cola. You know, he had to kind of learn new things along the way and have Munger help him out. I'm curious, you mentioned you know, the love for learning. You mentioned that conversation with William and Stig. What does your sort of learning process look like? Do you have a set time you sort of read or do you just kind of develop a habit? You know, how do you kind of develop that environment where you're continuously learning? I think the last part of your question is the most important, developing a conducive environment. Because, you know, first we shape our environment, then our environment shapes us, right? So very important to be away from all the distractions of, you know, the business television noise, the social media noise, all the digital media noise. Just try to avoid all the digital noise as much as possible and embrace what is known as digital minimalism. So basically, you try to develop a long attention span. If you're constantly trying to get those dopamine rushes by checking your email or checking social media for likes and retweets, 
or get trying to look for social external validation that is when you basically you fall prey to short term thinking and fomo fear of missing out so avoid those bad habits focus on developing a long attention span and focus more on reading books and essays and long form articles rather than tweets and you know short posts because you know you want to you know, develop a deep understanding of any subject by going really you know devoting a lot of time to it and focusing on more richer sources of content so my process is not structured per se but because of this attitude of just high intellectual curiosity i'm always on the lookout for learning something new even if it is from the same field even if i'm reading something on the fundamental principles of investing which i already know it's not a bad idea to keep reinforcing these fundamental principles in our mind constantly from time to time because this is what helps us stay the course and stay true to our discipline and remain disciplined during during bull market manias that is when we tend to let our guard down and embrace you know just uh, chasing the latest fad or trend hot trend in the market just avoid doing that stay the course with good quality businesses and pay respect to valuations now i know you've read a ton of books i'm curious if you could only choose 3 out of your massive massive library which 3 would you choose to maybe recommend to the audience or to others So I'll share three investing and three non-investing books with you. For the investing books, I've shared two of them already. Um, you can be a stock market genius by Joel Greenblatt, and uh, the other book is Capital Returns, edited by Edward Chancellor. Along with these two books, I would also add Investing for Growth by Terry Smith. because it taught me how to invest in high-quality businesses for the long term. As far as non-investing books go, I would highly recommend Poor Charlie's Almanac, which is edited by Pete Kaufman. Seeking Wisdom by Peter Bevelin and More Than You Know by Michael Morbison. Three great books for developing multidisciplinary thinking. Awesome. I'll have to order a couple of those after this call. So, got them. This was simply amazing. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. Hope to have you back someday again. Before we uh, close it out, as always, I want to give you a handoff for people to learn more about you, learn more about your funds, Stellar Wealth Partners, and any other resources you'd like to share with the audience today. Sure. So I can be connected with on LinkedIn and Twitter. And if you want to learn more about Stellar Wealth Partners India Fund, you can visit stellarwealthindia dot com. And if you want to learn more about Stellar Wealth PMS, which is a portfolio management service available to Indian citizens and NRIs, you can visit completecirclewealth dot com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Gautam. Thank you, Clay. This was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.